Okay. Thanks uh, again, my brother podcast listeners. Uh, we're back again today with Dr. Joseph Gaff, uh, who, as most of you might have heard, he's a, one of the top infectious diseases doctors uh, in the country. He's been on the front line helping us fight and deal with uh, this coronavirus outbreak and the COVID-19 epidemic. He's back again with us today, and he's been so gracious uh, in providing an update to just kind of give us a sense of where things are and to hopefully better inform us on exactly what's been happening, how those on the front line are dealing and tackling this, uh, dealing with and tackling this disease, and essentially what his perspective has been. Uh, Dr. Gath, thanks again for um, taking some of your precious time to share with us. How have you been? What has your last two weeks been like? Well, it's a good question. First of all, thank you for having me back. Uh, it's been a hectic time. It's like... Um, sort of preparing for a hurricane but you don't know exactly what when it's going to hit and how hard it's going to hit you and whether or not you have all the preparations and so we've been spending the time uh, past two weeks uh, trying to get prepared uh, getting uh, personnel in place getting uh, the beds available getting the uh, uh, medications that may be available in case this becomes a category five we're praying for the but you have to plan for the worst. And it's really just the unknown of what's going to happen in our community that's, that's the, uh, the frightening part. And so I guess the last two weeks is, one, getting prepared, but two, also pouring over the articles and the data and the information that's coming from China, from Italy, from Germany about uh, how they're handling things, what they think they're doing right, and what things that they've done there that didn't work out for them. So we can at least try to uh, uh, begin our battle with things that look like they may be a reasonable benefit for our community. And that's really what we've been working on lately. And that's uh, that's really a full-time job, uh, to be quite frank. Yeah, I can imagine. Are there any highlights from what um, you've garnered from the literature coming out of I guess South Korea, Italy, Spain, and some of those other places that have had similar trajectories to what we've had here in the U.S. Well, that's a good question, and you know, unfortunately, uh, it's hard to get accurate information. Not because of the doctors not wanting to give it, but the doctors are so busy trying to take care of patients, it's hard for them to take care of patients for twelve, eighteen-hour shifts, and then try to organize and get information back and so the information comes sort of in dribbles and I guess the easiest way for your uh, listeners to understand it's like having a jigsaw puzzle and, and you got all the pieces laying around and you, and you get a piece and you try to figure out if this piece fits into what you're seeing and so there may be a piece of something that we'll see from Italy that says oh my gosh that's what I'm seeing here this makes sense and try to get another piece from Korea and another piece of China and pieces that clearly don't fit, you try to to uh, move them away, and so it's uh, it's a it's assembling the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle so that when it hits here, we'll have enough pieces to be able to perhaps reliably and in some organized fashion uh, solve the rest of the puzzle. And that's really the easiest way I can explain it to you. Yeah, I got it. And, and so we we still are not anywhere near cure, and I think everybody's accepted that reality that's far off. What has been your approach to treating patients? I mean, what's been sort of the, you know, the different approaches that you guys have been taking and what's working? Any thoughts on that? 
Well, uh, the, the thing that we still are stumbling with is we don't have a reliable way of seeing who's infected. Uh, we don't have access to testing. And what the podcast listeners need to understand, even with access to testing, the testing can be inaccurate. For example, we're now understanding that the nasal swabs that we're doing may miss 40% of the patients either because the test wasn't done correctly or the test was done too early. It looks like you may have to have symptoms for over seven days for that test to potentially be positive. And so that puts a monkey wrench into how to approach patients because uh, we may be approaching people late because, quote, unquote, they had a negative test. Uh, but in reality, they really had the disease process. I'll share with you a patient that was very instructive to me. It's actually a, a personal friend of mine that on the phone had all of the symptoms, in my estimation, of COVID-19. But when he was swabbed in his nose, his test was negative. And so the average physician would have sent him home to, you know, you don't have anything wrong with you, you don't have COVID-19. But listening to his story, I was very convinced that independent of the test, he had COVID-19. As it turned out, he got very sick with pneumonia, and luckily our interventions got him better. But it took over three days for that nasal swab to turn positive, even though clearly he had the disease process. And so I say that to say that while we need to do the testing, the testing has to be interpreted as to what the patient's risk are and what their symptoms are, because just because it's negative doesn't mean you don't necessarily have the the, uh, the COVID-19. And that is something that our uh, medical infrastructure has to um, figure out how to deal with, because I think, as, as your listeners know, it's hard to get into a doctor's office because doctor's offices are concerned about COVID-19, and we're doing more uh, remote medicine and telemedicine and, and things like this. And so uh, what we're going to have to do is when the testing becomes available, you're going to have to speak to a physician about what that test means. If it's positive, obviously, we need to have some interventions. But if it's negative and there's a reasonable likelihood that either what you're complaining about or what your symptoms are of COVID-19, then you need to be treated as such. And that is something that is just, uh, that we're just learning about and some of the information from China uh, actually uh, bore that out. And so it's something that our, our medical first liners are going to have to try to interpret and get people into care as soon as possible. Doc, you just threw the proverbial monkey wrench into the mix. Um, because I think for a lot of people, you know, we're all hanging on to hope that now we have testing and these tests will let you know. So if you get tested, you get the all clear, you know, you put a praise Jesus, hallelujah post on Facebook and say it worked out. But now there's a possibility that up to 40% of those cases are coming back as negatives. Uh, I, I, I'm not even sure what the follow up question to that is other than how do people now better take, I guess, precautionary measures to understand that science, and in this case, medical testing, does have limitations? What What are the implications of that, and what active, uh, you know, what things can people actively do to help further stem the spread of this virus, knowing that we don't have a foolproof testing uh, regimen in place? 
Well, and, and therein lies the question, and you, and you hear it over and over and over and over again from the TV, we have to put people away from having risk for either catching this or spreading this. And so this social distancing and washing your hands and things like this that you hear over and over and over again are not hollow shouts from us. It is critical that we, that we don't have people put themselves at risk for infection so that we don't have to worry about interpreting the test because you are not exposed. And that is why the social distancing, especially in the next few week period of time when we're expecting the peak of the active infections and sick people that are going to be coming in, that it's imperative that we do this at this time. I make the assumption that every person that I see has COVID-19, whether it's in my office, at the hospital, walking down the hall, walking in the grocery store. You have to assume that everybody may have it because we can't tell whether or not they do or not. And now that we're seeing more, there's more and more asymptomatic spread, it's even more imperative. And so the first thing you have to do is to don't put yourself at risk. The second thing you have to do is use common sense when you do have to go out. You have to go out to the grocery store. You have to get gas in your car. Uh, you have to go to the pharmacy and things like this. And this gets down to um, maybe jumping ahead. It gets down to what the CDC is saying about the mask situation, that we need to consider wearing masks when we go out. And the point of that is the CDC is assuming that you have COVID-19 virus and they don't want you to cough it or spread it to the cashier at the grocery store. And so the masking process that the CDC is requesting has nothing to do with you catching the virus. They're making it something that you may have it and don't want to spread it elsewhere. And so this masking thing is a step on top of the social distancing when you can't necessarily social distance. And the the goal of that, again, is to decrease the amount of COVID-19 that is spreading around wherever it may be spread around until we have a chance to get ahead of the epidemic because we simply are not going to have the testing to say yes or no to enough people to make sure that our community does not remain at risk, especially during the months coming up of April and May for those reasons. Yeah, so, Doc, if I've been taking every precautionary measure, been staying indoors, I only go out for groceries or to go to the pharmacy, do I need a mask if I, I've had no symptoms? And I'm saying from a personal self-interest perspective, do I still does a mask do anything to potentially protect me? Because there's this debate about whether these can be transmitted through the aerosols that linger in the air perhaps a bit longer than just being within six feet of someone. So I think there are a lot of people who have been, as a precaution, sewing up bandanas and coming up with different ways to create masks. I get the CDC standpoint and perspective on it, but if me as an individual is trying to better protect myself, is a mask that's not an N95, you know, better than nothing? So that's a good question. And what I tell people, you have to take a common sense approach to things. If you're going into your, in your car and there's nobody else in the car but you, and you're going to the gas station and pumping gas and there's nobody in the remote vicinity of you, 
there's no reason that you need to have a mask on. But you need to have the mask in your car or your or your pocket because when you go to Fiesta because you need to get something there and there are people standing in line, I would put a mask on for two reasons. One, in case I do have it and I'm asymptomatic and I do not want to spread it to the poor cashier that has 100 people in her face or his face uh, over the next eight hour shift period of time trying to serve our community. And two, just in case the person uh, ahead of you, behind you coughs and there's an aerosol and you're not exactly six feet away, then maybe that will decrease the chance of you being exposed, especially again during this critical period where we're seeing the maximum number of people that may have symptomatic or even asymptomatic uh, COVID-19 potentially spreading the disease. And so common sense approaches, I think, will make a big difference as to how we approach it. So yes, I would have a mask. I mean, take me. I've got to go out every day. I've got to work. I've got to walk through three or four hospitals. I've got to get gas. I'm the grocery guy. I've got to do all this. So I have a mask in my pocket. Do I work 24-7? No. But if I'm walking into uh, Whole Foods or Randall's, I'll put it on until I get through that, until I get back in my car, and then I'll take it off because, uh, you know, my risk inside my car by myself is very little. Now, having said that, one has to be cautious with masks. One, not only you have to put them on correctly, people are not used to wearing masks. And so what ends up happening is because you're not used to wearing masks, you tend to put your hands on your face to adjust the mask or to pull it or to take your glasses off because they're fogging because the mask is on, it is more dangerous for you to put your hands on your face multiple times a day moving around your mask than it is having the mask itself. And so if you feel uncomfortable with the mask and feel like you've got to adjust it every five minutes, you probably shouldn't have a mask on and you probably really need to make sure that you're not in a position where you need the mask. And so this is back to looking at this whole thing in a common sense standpoint to decrease your risk of spreading the infection over this critical next one to two month period of time. Okay, so doc, back on the clinical front, um, how long is it taking the typical patient to recover? And at what point in their treatment, at least those who are hospitalized, do you now determine, okay, it's time we release this patient to send them home? So one thing I'm seeing clinically is that there are no rules for coronavirus. I've seen people begin their presentation with nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea and don't get lung symptoms for 10 days. I've seen people get lung symptoms within five days. And so it, I've seen people just present with a fever and don't get pneumonia for two weeks. And so the presentation is all over the board. And that is one thing that I've learned in my first 10 patients. I've seen no, none of those people were the same. What I can tell you that's interesting is all 10 of my first patients are all below the age of 50. And so this whole issue that, oh, you don't have to worry unless you're over 65, you got heart disease, you got asthma, this, that, and the other. Yes, you do have to worry in that group. But just because you don't have it and you're young and you're healthy doesn't mean you can't get it. And of those 10, I would say at least four, if not five, had no other other like medical problems uh, that would suggest they be at risk. And so 
we can't simply say I'm 40 years old and even though I have a fever, there's no way I can have it because I don't have asthma, I don't have heart disease, etc. cetera. Uh, you, you can't do that. You have to make sure that you don't have it and get treated because those people can get very sick also. That's the first thing. The second thing is quite clear to me is that the key to trying to make sure that people don't get sick is to try to get into treatments before the disease gets to your lungs or starts causing pneumonia. Once it starts causing pneumonia, it's very difficult for the medicines to work because by that time, the medicines that try to control the virus, it's too late. It's the horse already running out of the barn, as I say, because since the virus is already in your lungs growing, taking a medicine that's going to slow the virus down is too late because the virus has already taken its toll. And so the key, I think, to trying to make sure that people don't get sick enough to go on into a ventilator is to be able to intervene with medications early enough that they don't get to that point. Now, the controversial point of that is, are there any medicines that can do that? And you're hearing all kinds of things on TV and are... Um, I won't mention any names, but people on the podium in Washington saying people that all need to take uh, hydroxychloroquine. All of that is not the right answer to the question. It needs to be done, I think, in conjunction with your doctor for people that are used to seeing COVID-19 patients and trying to make decisions on where your treatment needs to be. But clearly, the sooner you're diagnosed, and you have some type of inter intervention, the better you are as far as uh, not progressing to things, not progressing to points needing to be, not necessarily hospitalized, not necessarily, but going on a ventilator and uh, having a significant problem at that point. Got it. So, Doc, when you uh, your patient gets better, uh, what determines when you say, okay, it's time for them to go back home, and then when they are released, uh, are they still a potential threat to 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 people around them in their household? Uh, and do are they if they do come out on the other side, are they effectively not immune to any subsequent COVID nineteen infection during this time? Excellent question, and the fair answer is no one knows. But I can tell you what I think, and there's a couple of things. The first point is sending people home today is probably going to be different than sending home people in the next two to three week um, period of time. Let me explain that. If we get any type of surge remotely like we are in New York, then there's going to be a tremendous bed crunch and we're going to be sending people home that look like they're whatever the definition of stable is because we need the bed for someone else coming in. So right now we're keeping people in the hospital a little longer to make sure that they're stable and to make sure their home situation is where it needs to be. Uh, but I think coming the next few weeks period of time, that's going to change that more people will either be treated at home without ever coming to the hospital, even though we probably wish we could, or being sent home earlier than we would like. So when a person goes home, we're assuming they are continuing to be infectious. Uh, and we assume that you're infectious until your nasal test is negative two consecutive times, 24 hours apart. That may take anywhere from two weeks to even more after you have the infection. And we don't know, because we haven't seen enough people to know, we don't know what the average is. But I tell people to, to stay in some type of quarantine slash isolation 
for at least two weeks or until we can get those tests back. So what does that mean? Well, it's difficult. The means on we need to put you in a position or a place in your home setting that is far away from everybody else as you can. Sometimes that's possible. Some people have a bedroom. I think you, anybody's watching CNN, you see Chris Cuomo, they got him locked down in his basement. Yeah. Well, we don't have any basements in Houston. We don't have any basements in Houston. That's not possible. Some people don't have enough room uh, to, be able to, to put a person by themselves. And so I tell people that they need to put the person as far away from everyone else as they can. And when you interact with the patient, you need to do so with each person having a mask on and also with gloves and washing, uh, you know, washing hands uh, as well as even clothing after the interactions and make the interactions as limited as possible. As far as you know, obviously no hugging and no kissing and no sharing toothbrushes, but bring the food in, have a quick conversation and then close the door and walk out because we do not want anyone in the home setting that hasn't already been exposed to get an infection afterward, but we need that patient to be cared for um, as they should. And so the, 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 the answer is we need two consecutive tests that are negative. The, the question is how long that takes. And I would say for the average, we're expecting that may need to be that may be two weeks after you've been symptomatic, but that is also continuing to be a work in progress. Got it. That's very, uh, that's enlightening because I think that's been a, a big area where just not a lot of light has been shed. So thanks for covering that. Uh, I want to pivot for a second and talk about the macro implications of this disease. Um, historically, or what we've seen in recent times has been people talk about demographics that are affected. You've disabused us of that notion, uh, thankfully, that because you're under 50, you're somehow less at risk and can have a laissez-faire attitude. But beneath those numbers, uh, recently there have been a few national news reports about um, underreporting or no reporting at all of racial demographics. So beyond just the age demographics, uh, what racial groups might be having a, 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 a tougher goal with COVID-19 they have been more adversely impacted, specifically in places like Milwaukee, Michigan, Illinois, North Carolina that have been uh, tracking this data. We're seeing that a significant or disproportionate number of those that are affected are African-Americans, uh, similar to what we're seeing in you know somewhere like New Orleans, where the death rate is seven times that of what they've had in New York. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? And, and, and you know, how, how could perhaps better information about that be shared and what might be driving the fact that African-Americans are more adversely impacted in those areas where they have been tracking the statistics? Well, again, you know, this is going to be a work in progress because essentially there's no African-Americans in China. There's not many African-Americans in Italy. There's no African-Americans in uh, uh, Germany. I'm being facetious, but the numbers of people there, as far as the population is concerned, is very small. Right. And so we don't have the demographics of other racial inequities in diagnosis uh, and outcomes because we just don't have the information in our communities. As we come to the United States and looking, as you know, we just don't, uh, you know, African Americans don't 
get health care like they should. We're always underrepresented when it comes to things. And, uh, and, and you know, it, it's no different with this. Of the first 10 people that I've seen uh, with symptomatic COVID-19 disease that needed to come into the hospital, 50% are African-Americans. Now, and does that mean that 50% of African-Americans in Houston are infected? No, that may just be the luck of the first 10 that I've seen. But it would not surprise me if we see a disproportionality in our communities uh, because we have less social distancing because people have to live together sometimes in, in, uh, in not the greatest situations. We have more comorbid conditions of hypertension, diabetes, we, uh, uh, obesity, uh, access to care has been less. And so the concern is that we're, we're going to see a disproportionality in African Americans as far as outcomes are, as far as, uh, uh prevalence of disease for hope, uh, and also potentially outcomes. But quite frankly, we don't know. We're, we're trying to look at it. We have a, we're, you know, in conjunction with, uh, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, we've, uh, been able to open up some drive-through testing centers. And what I can tell you is, of the 4,000 people that have driven through and been tested in Houston, the positivity rate is 8.2%. Uh, we haven't broken down the demographics of who those 8.2% are, but these are people that have cars and are able to drive through the centers to get tested. And so it's actually a group of people uh, that may not be reflective of what the community is. And Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee is working on getting testing centers out in the middle of the communities, especially in the African-American communities, in order to be able to get better numbers. And hats off to her because she has been an angel and has always fought for our communities uh, through all the years uh, that she's represented us and known us. Uh, but for sure, she's on the front lines with this, with their, with their mask on, sitting in there and asking, asking us what's going on, what do we need to do, what we need to happen. So stay tuned. We're going to have those numbers. Mm -hmm. My concern is we're going to see a disproportionality of cases in our community compared to the population. Uh, and that may, that may also be communities of color, too. I, we don't have a lot of data on the, uh, on the um, Latino communities uh, or even men versus women. So stay tuned. But right now, uh, I think everyone, unfortunately, is fair game to potentially get sick and have a problem with this. And we need to treat our community as such. Yes, uh, definitely understood. Uh, and I'm glad to, that you mentioned that, you know, the, you know, significant effort of folks like yourself. I know your colleague, Dr. Joseph Verone, uh, you all have been instrumental in expanding the testing sites. Uh, yet we still don't have enough testing and that continues to be a problem. Where are we in terms, though, of protective uh, PPEs, the uh, personal protective equipment and ventilators as far as, you know, medical professionals are concerned do we, where and i'm saying we as as far as the houston area so right now we're 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 we have enough today the question is will we have enough for two weeks or four weeks and again because we don't know how bad the hurricane is going to be so to speak we don't know how many devices for all those things that you mentioned uh, that we that we're going to need and so we're stockpiling as many ppes as we can um, today we have enough. If there's going to be a significant surge like New Orleans or New York, I'm afraid it's going to overwhelm this. We're, we're, we, we, we've got protocols, if we will, to try to, um, 
I should say, extend the life of the PPEs and, uh, you know, making sure, for example, only essential personnel are going to the bedside of the patient so you don't have people, you know, wasting a gown just for a five-minute visit to the patient. So we're doing that, but the concern is how many we're really going to have. And the ventilator thing is what you're hearing on TV. It just depends on how many people we're going to get. My ultimate goal is to hopefully get people into units such as the one that we've set up before they need to go on a ventilator in hopes that the treatment programs that we have will prevent them from needing to go on the ventilator. Uh, I think a lot of people want on ventilators now simply have not had, didn't know they have it, didn't have access to care uh, early enough. And by the time, you know, you get to the point of needing a ventilator, it's really hard to come off. And so uh, I think we're going to potentially have a problem if the numbers are ones that will surge over our ability to care for them. So, so far as the Houston area is concerned, who's coordinating all this? What's the level? I mean, who's tracking the PPEs, the ventilators? What's the level of coordination that, at least from your experience, between the city, the county, the hospital systems and those who are on the front line, the medical professionals like yourself, what's that coordination been like? Well, the coordination has been peace, not as good as it should be. And that's, you know, that's no fault to our mayor and our city health departments because this has all hit us all of a sudden without a prepared text. And we, we all just weren't prepared for a disaster, a public health emergency like this. And so, uh, you know, we, we reach out, and I don't want to say it's every man for himself, but, but Methodist, I'm sure, is trying to get their equipment. Uh, UMMC, where I'm working with our unit, we're trying to get our equipment. So we're, we're sort of trying to plan on, you know, getting the things we need for our location. We're not hoarding or anything. We're, we're, we're getting enough that we think the, uh, that, that what looks like the epidemic is going to bring to us. But essentially, we don't have a coordinated plan because, quite frankly, we don't have a national coordinated plan. This, this isn't just us. This right. is the entire nation uh, that's a, that is um, that is being affected by this uh, pandemic. And, you know, what we're doing is we're, we're bidding against other people for ventilators and equipment. If there's 15 ventilators out there, you have New York, Louisiana, Milwaukee, and us calling for those ventilators. Well, you know, Sylvester Turner doesn't have any more pull than anybody to get those ventilators over to Houston. And that's back to not having a coordinated effort of dealing with the pandemic that we're facing. We talked a little bit about that the first podcast, and I don't, you know, I don't want to dwell on the past because I can't change the past. I have to try to, to affect the future. But that past is why we have the issues that we have now, and no semblance of court, more coordination from uh, our local leaders is going to help. They just got to sort of beg and borrow like we're doing to make sure that we have uh, the infrastructure we need. And I think Sylvester, uh, Sylvester Turner is looking at you know alternative things. For example, I think you know, NRG State, in case we really get an overload about where we can actually. Uh, place patients if, if and when we run out of beds, but will that location have enough PE, PPEs and ventilators and that kind of thing? And, and Lord knows, I don't want to be in a position that, that your podcast uh, listeners are, are hearing that you see in New York where physicians have to make decisions on who lives and who dies. I, I, I pray to God every night that I get on my knees that, I, that he does not put me in that position because I, 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 to not be 
uh, not to be trite, is way past my pay grade, and my job is to save everybody that I can, and I'm not the person to, to, to say lives and dies. And, and what I'm hearing from my colleagues in New York, they're having to make those decisions, and that is the absolute toughest thing that a healthcare professional has to do. So I pray to God, whatever the surge is, that I have enough ability to take care of everyone that God puts in front of me that I can do the best we can to save to save that person. So I'm just hoping it doesn't come to that, but but you know we we just don't know until until it is. And I'm gonna definitely second that, Amen, because um, I, I could not even uh, fathom um, how difficult a decision that must be uh, for those who gave that took that Socratic oath to have to make. Um, if I could sort of now bring it back to you know bigger picture and i i just want to talk about houston on march 16th we shut down all restaurants and bars and said people could no longer sit in and eat or gather at those places march 24th about eight days later the county judge issued a stay uh stay safe work from home order we're about 10, 11 days later. It appears that the infection rate still continues to climb at a pretty steep incline. Uh, is just try, is, is the, are those efforts yielding any results or is it too early to determine any uh, results from those social distancing efforts? So, you know, First, it's too early to tell 100%, but I can tell you I think it's going to make a difference. It's going to make a difference in the steepness of the curve that, that you just talked about. You say the curve is still going up. That is uh, seeds that have already been sown. The curve is going to go up no matter what we did on March 16th and March 24th because it's already people that have been exposed, infected, and are spreading the disease. What we're trying to do is to make sure that curve doesn't get any steeper than what it is uh, now or what it was then. And if you look, the one thing I can tell you is the places that uh, implemented this social distancing earliest on do not have curves that look like New York, New Orleans, Detroit. Uh, the best one I can say is Taiwan, where they don't have hardly any cases uh, of COVID-19 because, one, it's a little bit cultural for them to wear a mask and things anyway. That's, that's a different story. But they did that very early on. Their case numbers are far lower uh, than uh, what they are in other parts of the world. Same thing in Germany. Germany's much much lower than uh, Italy, probably because we did that. And so, yes, I think it makes a difference. But, but you have to be consistent. You can't do it for four days and then decide to go to a, a, a crawfish cookout at your neighbor's house with 10 of your closest friends. You have to do it every single day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, until we get to the back half of this curve uh, to, to, uh, to, to make sure that we don't infect more people than what we already have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... ABC News had a report earlier this week that suggested that the Houston region is likely significantly underreporting its numbers. Uh, obviously, you cited the fact we don't have enough testing. Tests are coming back negative in some cases um, that are false negatives. Uh, in the report, they cited the fact that about 996 patients 
uh, who were either confirmed or suspected COVID-19 uh, affected people were admitted, yet the numbers at that time reflected 960 people as being positive in the Houston region. It's a pretty, uh, you know, wide variance in what you might expect if so many people are potentially hospitalized versus what uh, we're seeing in the numbers. How, how massive is this number potentially in the Houston region right now? Well, and I, I mentioned it a second ago, the only number that I can tell you that in a prospective fashion makes sense are the UMMC testing sites that we've done for the past couple of weeks where 4,200 people were tested and 8.2% of those people were positive. So if you just take that 8.2% and multiply it times how many people are in the Houston Harris County area? Two million, three million? Then you have that percentage of people that have the virus and are exposed. If you say 25% of those people are going to get sick and need some kind of medical attention, including hospitalization, then you can see how those numbers of people can easily overwhelm the system because they're all coming in at the same time. It's not like that. Let's just pick a number, 170,000 people are going to come in over the next six months. Those 70,000 people are going to come in over the next two to six weeks. Right. That's what you're seeing in New York, and that's what the major problem we're going to have. And that is a concern because when you start doing testing, I saw something in the newspaper and I just picked it up on the driveway of a nursing home in Texas City with uh, 68 people that are positive. Well, those people are going to get sick and have to go somewhere. We haven't even talked about the jail and the prison system. Mm -hmm. Where are they going to go? They've got to be cases in there. Uh, and so you have all of these little hotbeds, if you will, where clearly you know people are going to get sick and then come out. It's just a question of how quick they're all going to come out together versus how much they're going to be spread. And the concern, like New York and New Orleans, is they're all going to be coming at one time in the system just is not going to be able to handle it. Yeah, so Doc, I, I've been of the impression that the people who were taking advantage of the drive-through testing are people who might have felt they they exhibited some kind of symptom or had a cure or concern. And so I always view that as the people who are going in for tests are likely those who already have some reason to go in for tests. Or, uh, is it that you have people, are the drive-throughs designed for people who just want to be doubly assured to come out and get tested or is it really reserved for those who might be great at greatest risk who might have a family member who's been exposed or so on and so forth that's a good question so the ummc sites take all comers there are other sites uh, throughout houston that require either some type of symptoms or a doctor's orders or things like this the ummc people are all coming through, uh, and they don't need anything other than wanting to get tested. Oh, wow. uh, now, I'm not sitting there and telling you I've got an examination or a history of everybody driving through, but I can tell you that the majority of the people coming through are not people that are sick that have to go right to the hospital in the emergency room. Most of those people are more than worried, well, I think I've been exposed or somebody in the house has been exposed, I want to be tested and, and things like this. And so they're more than worried, well, they're not the ones that are uh, at home with 101 temperature, wondering you know what's going on. And so that's why, to me, this is a reasonable snapshot of what's happening in our community because the majority of those people aren't sick. I, mean, I, can't, I can't remember maybe one or two people in that drive up, at least at the UMMC site on Tidwell, 
uh, that had to be taken out of their car and placed in the emergency room because they were just that sick. And so uh, it's all comers, and that's why that that eight percent number is of concern uh, if that number translates to the general population. But again. We don't want it to translate the general population past the numbers that are there, which is back to the social distancing and washing their hands. Those 8.2% of people, they didn't come to the hospital. They went back home. And so they're out there potentially spreading the virus, not intentionally, but they're potential people that can spread. And we need to make sure that the rest of the population doesn't contact that 8.2% of people. Yeah. Wow. Sobering statistics, indeed. Um, Doc, thanks again for your time. I, I have a wrap-up question. Um, one, uh, you know, a friend of mine posted this morning, you're not on lockdown if you can go to the refrigerator whenever you want, change the channel whenever you want, so on and so forth. So we're not in a lockdown. But uh, how long are we likely to be in this uh, sort of stay home unless absolutely essential to be out pattern and it is and i know it's just two weeks later but is there any further hope of a of a of a trajectory as to when this might start to curtail and any other good news you might want to share with the listeners i'm sure we could all use some good news from you in particular well i think the first good news uh Ten of the ten people I've had the opportunity to care for um, with COVID, they were sick enough to come to the hospital, will be walking in the hospital without having gone to ventilator and going back to their families. And so that is an absolute God's blessing of giving us guidance on how to treat. And as I told each one of those ten, I'm learning for you to help them from you to help the next ten. You all will save some lives. And so the learning curve for me is there to the point that I think we're going to be able to do some things to try to mitigate, if you will, uh, the numbers of people that could die from this. You know, I can't promise, uh, you know, I'm not God, I can just try, but the things that we're doing look like they may have some effects. So that's the first good news. Uh, the second good news is, you know, like you say, social life, social distancing and staying at home, brings us closer to the families. We have to have to talk to each other <laughs> and have conversations. <laughs> That's that you never did before. The kids get tired of li- licking, talking on their cell phones. They have to actually come at the table and have a conversation with you for the first time in the past two years. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and there are ways you have to learn how to connect differently. I mean, just take me in my office. I've learned to connect with my patients with telemedicine that I never would have done before. And actually, it works pretty well. I mean, we laugh and, 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 and joke just like they're sitting in front of me. So it's, it's my, my social distancing from my patients has brought me closer. I've got now making house calls wow. for one of a better in my community. And so it's going to change how we do medicine after this. And I think that part is going to be for the better. Uh, the third thing you have people in this community that care. Houston is an amazing town. When when the, when then the chips get down, we get together from from, uh, from backing up New Orleans uh, from Hurricane Katrina all the way to Harvey to Allison to everything. Houston's are an amazing group of people, and we have leadership that is putting us in the best position to respond as best we can. So I don't feel uh, from the community leadership that we have that anything is lacking. Everybody is doing the very best they can, 
and they are interested in making sure that the community has what they need as best as we can. Uh, and the third thing is that I'm hoping that our things that we've gotten out there and people are doing the social isolation, that the, the, the steep curve that you're seeing in other cities is not going to happen there. That's what we pray to God for, and that's what I'm hoping that your podcast people uh, can send the energy and, and ask God to make sure that whatever happens is not something that we can't handle as a healthcare system to be able to get through this. And the third thing I want society to, to understand, I mentioned the last podcast, this not only can happen again, it will happen again. I can't prevent this from happening or make a better response. Us as a society have to demand that this doesn't happen again like this. We have to go to our leaders and say, look, I'm not, I don't care how much it costs, but I want a ventilator set store set up in some place with 60,000 ventilators that somebody can go get if we need it. I want, I want how many ever masks we need locked up somewhere so we can take the lock off the door when this happens and give it to the, to the people. I want to know which company is going to do the testing so that we know when it's time to do the testing, we know exactly where to go. And society has to go and say that we're not going to let this happen again. We're not going to, put our, our first responding healthcare people at risk going without gowns, gloves, or whatever else. It's just not going to happen again. And I'm hoping that as we are sitting in our homes thinking about all this, that we plan for the next one and not react in the middle of, uh, of an epidemic like we're having to do now. Yeah. Dr. Geth, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I want you to know that we are praying with and for you, Deanna, the family, your entire team. I so appreciate you taking time to share this important knowledge and information with our listeners. And we just will you know, continue to cheer you on and we'll continue to do our part to spread the message and really encourage the society to come together and do our part to defeat this virus. Uh, thanks again for taking the time. Any parting words? Uh, we're all good. Pray for us. I'm praying for our community and, uh, you know, uh, let's get this licked, uh, Houston. Let's let's go our coronavirus fight. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna take it to them. Amen and amen. Thank you.